Good morning. That's the third time you had to say good morning back to somebody. Maybe we need to compress that a little bit. Well, this is the fourth message in a series of 4,000 messages on Romans. <laughs> Three verses at a time. No, we're, t- today we are going to, uh, our goal is to finish the chapter. How about that? <clears throat> we will see. Uh, the, the message this morning is in, in verses 24 to 32. I, I asked Bob to go ahead and read the entire context of 18 to 32 because it, that's, uh, in chapter 1, that's the beginning of Paul's indictment against mankind, that entire passage, beginning with the statement that men, uh, having the knowledge of God, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of man's suppression of the truth. Now, just to, to kind of, again, set the context... Last week, in verses 21 to 23, we saw that, that men refused to honor God as God or to give thanks. Uh, and then they, they became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of basically created things, starting with man himself. So, man... Failed theology followed from man's failure to humbly worship God, humbly and gratefully worship God. Now today, we're going to see Paul develop kind of the rest of how this plays out. And he's going to show us that man's failed theology leads to failed morality. And that God gave men over to impurity. And we'll talk a lot about that idea of God giving men over. We'll see then that in verses 26 to 32, how the failed morality of men plays out, what that looks like in the form of degrading passions, a depraved mind, and depravity heartily approved by men. Finally, we're going to examine the question, are believers capable of committing the sins that are described in this passage? First, Failed theology leads to failed morality. Verses 24 and 25 of Romans 1. Paul says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's, Paul makes this statement, and in the context of the statement, he does that which he says men do not do. He honors God as God, and he praises him. He actually prays to him. I believe verses 24 and 25 present a hinge or a transition in this passage between what Paul has just said in the preceding verses and what he's about to say. These two verses point back to what Paul said in verse 23 about the failed theology of men, which, of course, follows from their unwillingness to humbly honor God and give thanks. And these same two verses point forward to specific ways in which that failed theology plays out in the form of depraved behavior and depraved thinking. In other words, failed morality. Now, both the word therefore at the beginning of verse 24 and the word for at the beginning of verse 25 point back 
to what Paul said in verses 22 and 23 about man's self-made religion of idolatry by which they seek to be rid of the true God. And the declaration then in verse 24 that God gave men over to impurity points forward to the kinds of impurity that Paul will talk about in verses 26 to 32. Now, I kind of went through that twice, hoping that you can get the flow of the context. But if you didn't, don't worry, you'll see it as it, as we move forward. Paul is saying here that man's impurity follows from man's bad theology. And as we already saw, uh, all of it starts at the same point. And it's interesting, Paul is going to go back to the idea of worship at least twice as he goes through this passage. Now, I'm going to real quickly review this slide that we showed last time. Why all men are without excuse before God. God, in verses 18 through 20, clearly revealed himself in his creation through that which has been made. Clearly, he said. Then, verse 21, men refuse to worship God. They refuse to bow down before the true God. In verses 21 through 23, and then it's kind of repeated here in 25, men replace the truth of God with a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's failed theology. And then the bottom of the downward spiral is how men behave. Men act based on their own lie, and that's failed morality. Again, at every point... After men reject God's creation, starting with men's rejection of God's creation, the wrath of God applies to men, and men stand condemned. All right. In verses, uh, again, verses 24 and 25, we see God gave men over in the lusts of their hearts uh, to impurity. Uh, that idea of being given over is a powerful concept here. It actually comes up three times in verse, comes up in verse 24, we'll see it in verse 26, and we'll see it again in verse 28. The word for gave over is the same word that's used repeatedly in the Gospels and in Acts in reference to Jesus being given up to the, uh, into the hands of the Jewish and Roman authorities to be tortured and tried and crucified. It's also the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, when he says that he delivered a particular sinner over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The connotation of this word, to give over, is to hand someone's destiny, at least the near-term destiny, over to another person or to some course of events to give over control of that person's future to someone or something else, someone other than yourself. Of course, this does not mean that God ceases to be sovereign. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that when he gives someone over that he no longer has any influence over what happens with them. Uh, a great biblical example of how this works is, and some of you may be ahead of me, Job, right? God handed Job over for a time to Satan, to Satan's devices. But Satan could do nothing apart from God's permissive or active will. And by the way, I'm not sure that many, uh, that, that men can ever actually distinguish between God's permissive 
versus God's active will. I'm not even sure that that distinction exists. But in the end, everything that happened to Job was to bring about an outcome in Job's relationship with God that honored God and that blessed Job because he belonged to God. That's how it always works for us who are God's chosen. That which honors God ends up blessing his people. But in Romans 1, God is handing fallen men over to their own devices, to their own way of doing things, and most specifically, to the lusts of their own hearts. Now, it's worth pointing out in this passage that Satan is not mentioned in the text. It doesn't say God gave men over to Satan's devices. It says God gave men over to their own devices. Men refused to humble themselves to honor God as God. And so he gave them over to dishonor themselves, to render themselves impure, unclean. He basically gave men enough rope to hang themselves by following after the lusts of their own hearts, and that's exactly what they did. They hanged themselves. James lays out a similar progression of the, the movement towards sin in James 1, verses 13 to 15. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I remember when I was still fairly young in the Lord, and I learned that a certain very prominent televangelist had been caught in a persistent sexual sin. This guy said publicly that he was really sorry. But the focus of all his statements was essentially, the devil made me do it. And after another prominent televangelist prayed over this guy and declared him to be delivered from the talons of Satan that had imprisoned this poor man's heart, the one who had been caught in the grievous sin was promptly restored to his ministry. And the idea that came through loud and clear in all this was that the real culprit was Satan. He was the only real offender, not the man who actually committed the sin. But that's not how God sizes up our sin. God says when we set him aside and follow our own lies and our own lusts, those very lusts move us inevitably toward more sin and toward death. We don't actually need any help from Satan. (laughs) When we choose to indulge the desires of our own wicked hearts, we do not need deliverance. We need repentance. In Psalm 81, God used wording very similar to that which Paul uses here in Romans 1. But instead of talking about all mankind, this psalm speaks of God giving over His people Israel... And once again, man's own evil heart turns out to be the culprit. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would just listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, Yahweh, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. The word devices here is translated schemes or counsels in other passages. The idea is that God allowed Israel to act in keeping with their own version of reality rather than his. And every single time this word devices is used of men in the Old Testament, it occurs in a context of indictment against men for their evil ways. In other words, the devices or counsels of men are always evil. So anytime God gives men over to construct reality on their own terms, <laughs> they always embrace a lie. And they always move toward destruction. Beloved, we more than any other people on the face of the earth should be overwhelmed by the realization of our utter dependence upon God to tell us what is real and what is true. We, above all people, should be committed to the fact that we know nothing of spiritual or eternal value, indeed nothing about real life unless God tells it to us, because our hearts are wicked and they do not tell us the truth. In the very next verses in Psalm 81, God tells Israel how things would be if they would simply listen to Him instead of themselves and walk in His ways instead of their own. He says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. And then a couple of verses later he says, If you would do this, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. You would lack for nothing if you would just listen to me instead of you. God delights in blessing those who are willing to hear and to heed his revelation of himself. But he judges those who reject his revelation and replace it with their own foolishness. By the way, there's a very powerful paradox going on here. Unredeemed men want nothing more than to be free of externally imposed constraints, right? Particularly moral constraints. Men don't like to be told what to do. And they think the freedom from being told what to do is a blessing. But God declares here that it isn't the constraints demanded by his character that curse men. It's the absence of those constraints that curses men. In this passage and throughout the Bible, God's withholding of his restraining influence on the heart of man is a judgment, not a blessing. It's a curse. In Verse 24, it says, God gave men over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now the word impurity, is it means uncleanness in the eyes of God. In the Septuagint, which is an early Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that occurs over 23 times, at least 23 times in Leviticus, to denote 
the uncleanness that disqualified an Israelite from drawing near to the presence of God at the tabernacle. To the Jews in Paul's audience, this would be a very significant turn of phrase. Even today, Orthodox Judaism puts an exceedingly high value on ceremonial cleanness because anyone who is unclean cannot draw near to God, cannot enjoy fellowship with God. The problem is figuring out how to get clean. Also in this verse, Paul says, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now the phrase among them in the New American Standard is probably better rendered between them or with one another. What Paul is saying is that men dishonored each other that they did so physically, bodily, and by mutual consent. He's speaking here of the kind of sin that he goes on to describe in verses 26 and 27. Again, in verse 25, as we've said, Paul points back to his previous indictment against men for their rejection of God and their consequent failed theology as the reason that men, that God gave men over. Uh, And once again, his indictment here goes to the matter of worship. (laughs) He says men worshipped and served the wrong thing, the creature rather than the creator. They refused to humbly and gratefully bow down to the true God who had made himself known. And they worshipped the creature. Predominantly, they worshipped self. The first idol, as we saw last week, that the first image in which man created an idol is man himself. So God gave him over to his own devices. In verses 26 to 32, we see the failed morality of man played out as the outcome of God having given men over to their own ways. And there are three manifestations of man's depravity here. First, degrading passions in verses 26 and 27. Then a depraved mind in 28 to 31. And finally, men approve with all their hearts of their own depravity. First, let's look at the degrading passions part. Verse 26 starts with, for this reason. That is, because men worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Men justified their refusal to worship God by replacing the true God with false gods to divert their attention. (laughs) So God let man have his own way for a time. But in seeking to honor themselves, God says that men, in fact, dishonored themselves in their own bodies with one another. And here in verse 26, he zeroes in, he begins to zero in, on the specific ways in which men dishonored themselves. He says, the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And then he says, the men did the same. That they abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, literally, the Greek says they exchange the natural function for that which is against or contrary to nature. The word nature is the same in both of those those clauses. 
this phrase is. The word natural uh, is used also by Peter in 2 Peter 2.12, where he's speaking about false prophets who act like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct or of nature. That word instinct is the same word that's used here. And I think the idea here in Romans 1, 26 and 27 is that men's degrading passions lead them to violate even that which is instinctively proper, that which is evident, evident to all men, even on the physical level. Now, this is not an endorsement for people to order their lives on the basis of instinct. Uh, this passage itself argues forcefully against that approach. But I believe what Paul is saying is, is that even at the most primitive level of sensibility, this sin is a blatant violation of God's created order. Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20 detail the abominable sins of the Canaanites that God commanded Israel not to practice when they came into the land. And both of those passages include forceful prohibitions against homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13, says, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. In Genesis 18, verse 20, God told Abraham that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, quote, exceedingly grave. And as the narrative in that, in that passage progresses, leading up to the destruction of the two cities by the hand of God, there is one sin that is specifically spoken of. And it has to do with the men of the city seeking aggressively to have relations with the two men that had come to Lot's house, who in fact were not men at all, they were angels. Now, I point those passages out to say that contrary to what some would have us believe, there is nothing unclear in any of these passages about the nature of this specific sin. And yet, for some time, men, including some so-called Bible scholars, have gone to great lengths to try to prove that such passages are talking about a behavior that was culture-bound or time-bound to the Old Testament and that has nothing to do with modern-day homosexuality. The goal of such arguments is to convince us that God doesn't really consider this practice to be a grievous sin or perhaps even a sin at all. But in reality, these passages leave no room for such interpretation. They're actually very, very clear. In fact, the only way to explain the utter sinfulness of homosexuality away in these passages is to apply a radically different rule of interpretation only to the verses that are talking about that specific sin while not applying that same rule of interpretation to the other verses. If you were consistent and you declared homosexuality to be time-bound or culture-bound in this passage, in these passages, you would also have to excuse the sins of incest, adultery, cursing one's parents, and a bunch of others. Okay, that's the scoop on the Bible's approach to homosexuality. But please hear me when I say this. 
Does this mean that homosexuality is more worthy of condemnation than other sins? Say, for instance, than the sin of adultery. How about the sin of deceit? Or greed? Or gossip? If you keep reading in Romans 1, you'll see that Paul declares all of the above and several other sins to be worthy of death. Leviticus, after listing many different abominable sins of the Canaanites, makes the same point. Leviticus 18.29 says, Whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do shall be cut off from among their people. And if you look at other passages and you find out what cut off means, in most instances it means they die. They are to be executed. James 2 verse 10. Some of you learned this one in Awana. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. It's foundational to Paul's argument in Romans 1.18 through 3.20 that it only takes one sin, any sin, to disqualify a person from standing in the presence of our holy God. God's light can have no fellowship with our darkness. So while some sins are more damaging than others in this, in this economy, this side of heaven, every sin condemns us before God. The gospel of Jesus Christ leaves no place for self-righteousness. In fact, self-righteousness is the antithesis of the gospel of Christ. When I was in seminary, a group of us from our dorm went together on a Friday night to share the gospel in, outside of some of the, the gay bars on Cedar Springs. We stayed there till about 2 o'clock in the morning when the bars shut down, and we had some great conversations that night. One of the guys that, that I got to talk to said this was the first time he had ever, ever heard a Christian say that other sins like adultery and lust and greed were as worthy of condemnation as his sin. He said all that he was accustomed to hearing from Christians was how repulsive his particular sin was. And he opened up to us that night precisely because he understood that we were saying our sins are as worthy of condemnation as whatever he had done. We are all guilty of committing abominable acts in the eyes of God. And that's why we all need a Savior. And that's why God sent His Son to pay the eternal debt for our sins. If you're here today and you think that the sins in your life are so bad that God's grace cannot possibly apply to you, then it's exceedingly important for you to understand that His grace applies to the most grievous of sins and to the most grievous of sinners. His grace is your salvation if you will simply take Him at His word and trust in His Son. In verses 28 to 31, after talking about the degrading passions of men, Paul goes on to speak about the depraved mind or mindset of men. He says in verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. His his choice of words here in verse 28 is unusual, but it's piercing. 
And I think the NIV does the best job of rendering this rather odd turn of phrase. NIV says, they did not, men did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain or to hold on to the knowledge of God. Uh, I believe this verse goes back once again to the starting point of man's downward spiral. Paul skips the failed theology part, and he goes directly back to the root cause of man's spiritual demise. Men simply do not like to acknowledge the God who has revealed himself because they don't want to worship him. They don't see fit to honor him as God or give thanks. They certainly don't want to have to obey him. Men refuse to humbly bow down before the true God in worship because they don't want to be submitted to anyone or to anything. So they construct their own reality that they have control over, and then they call that their God. Paul says God gave men over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, I also find it instructive here that Paul uses the singular, a depraved mind. When he talked about degrading passions, it was plural. And we'll see in the following verses that man's unrighteousness makes men anything but united. (laughs) Indeed, sin divides and destroys relationships between men. But guys, fallen men are united in this one thing. They're of one mind when it comes to rejecting God and doing the things which are not proper. If you sometimes feel like there's a vast conspiracy out there against God and against God's people, you're not being paranoid. There is. There's one mind. But that's okay because by the grace of God, we who believe in Jesus Christ are on the winning side. (laughs) At the beginning of verse 29, Paul goes on to say that men are filled with all unrighteousness. And then he launches into a list of egregious sins. This is what happens when men empty themselves of the knowledge of the true God who has made himself clearly known. Having emptied themselves of truth, they become filled up to the brim with all unrighteousness. Now, I'm I'm not going to try to delve into a precise definition for each of these sins listed in verses 29 to 31. I think that would be missing the forest for the trees. But I believe this list gives us valuable insight into the nature of both sin and righteousness. It seems to me that everything in this list violates love, either love for God or love for men. Let's look at the list. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, excuse me, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, Unmerciful. This again is what happens when men set aside the personal knowledge of God in favor of their own depraved mindset. They become lovers of self and haters of God and haters of their fellow men. 
Their minds and their behavior become filled up with things that aggressively destroy relationship and fellowship with each other and with God. (laughs) And men don't just stick with tried and true manifestations of evil. Paul says they become inventors of evil. They are creatively destructive. It's interesting that disobedient to parents is in the same list of sins here that proceed from a depraved mind as haters of God, wickedness, greed, malice, envy, and murder. Honoring your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise, and God has a whole lot to say about it. In verse 32... Paul gets to the last manifestation of failed morality. He talked about degrading passions, a depraved mind, and now he talks about depravity heartily approved. He says, and though, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty, heartily, uh, excuse me, hearty approval to those who practice them. Now this is a very telling statement. Among the things that God has made evident about his nature to all men is that all who practice these grievous sins are worthy of death. Paul says this fact is known by all. That doesn't mean all admit it, but it does mean that God says they know it. And yet not only to those whom God has given over to a depraved mind do all these wicked things, They applaud these wicked things. As my brother John Moore commented to me earlier this week, all you have to do is listen to the people around you in this world, hear what they're talking about, and you'll see the clear evidence of the hearty approval of men with regard to sin. If you work in a large corporation, just stand by the water cooler for a while. Pick any popular form of entertainment and then listen to or look at the things that they glamorize, the things that they demonize, and the things that they advertise. This world has set aside the revelation of God. It has refused to honor Him as God and to worship Him and has chosen gods of its own making. And God has given men over to follow the lusts of their own hearts And the catastrophic outcome is out there for everyone to behold. Now, I made the point last week that this passage is not describing believers. The stark description that Paul presents in these verses is what people are like after God has given them over and their sin has run its course. This is the state of men who have been filled up with all unrighteousness. So, let's talk for a minute about the question, are believers capable of committing these sins? First question, is it possible for Christians to be filled up with all of these same grievous things that Paul is talking about? Well, I think not. Romans one twenty nine is the one and only occurrence of the word to fill or fill up in the Pauline epistles that is not applied to believers, and it's also the only occurrence that's negative. That is, in which it's talking about someone being filled up with something bad instead of with good things. 
I don't think there's a biblical basis for concluding that a redeemed child of God can be filled up with all unrighteousness. If he could, where would the new man have gone? But I believe it's quite clear from Scripture that we as believers in Jesus Christ are capable of committing the kinds of sins that Paul talks about in this passage. And the Bible not only teaches that we are capable of doing so, but it tells us we must be ever vigilant against the tendency of our old nature to run after these very things that are so grievous to God. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul speaks to believers. He says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And then he gets to the therefore. Therefore, consider, that means reckon, count as true, that the members of your body are dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. This list includes some of the exact same sins that Paul says proceed from the degrading passions and depraved mind to which God gave fallen men over in Romans chapter 1. But here in Colossians 3, he's warning believers to set aside these sins and to consider their bodies as dead to these sins. He commands us to practice as believers that which is already true of us positionally. We have been raised up with Christ in newness of life. And Christ in us and us in Christ is what defines who we are. That's our, the, real, the real identity of the believer is the new man. But we are commanded to practice that reality. In Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. And look at this. So that you may not do the things that you please. The things that you please. The New Testament warns us as believers to resist the very evil behaviors that characterize fallen mankind because we are capable of committing them. And not only are we capable, but but there is a, a residual of our old nature that actually desires to do these grievous things that violate the character of God. So if we drop our guard by thinking that we're not capable or prone to committing these sins because we're Christians, we set ourselves up for a fall. Nothing scares me more than hearing a brother in Christ say there's no chance that he could commit some particular grievous sin. As Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. God protects his children. He gives us a way away from the sin. But we are capable of sinning grievously. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not for a minute saying there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. Paul's going to have a lot to say in this epistle about the new nature of the believer, about our freedom from slavery to sin, and how our new nature delights in serving God. But until the day that we stand glorified in the presence of God, we will continue to struggle against the flesh, against some of the same sins that we struggled with before we were saved. And yet, as we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, we will experience greater and greater victory over the sins that, that threaten our relationship and fellowship with God. In 1 John 4, 4, John says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's why we need to keep our eyes on him. There's one last thing I want to say by way of warning uh, that I think we as believers must glean from this passage. And it is the calamitous curse of following your own heart. The world enthusiastically encourages us to follow our hearts. But there is no more nefarious or destructive lie in the universe than that. The last thing you want is for God to let you follow your own heart. (laughs) That's exactly what he did with the people that are described in this passage. And it didn't turn out well. Here's one of the many examples of what God says about following your own heart. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 9. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the, de- in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. That's bad. And then in verse 9, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you're up there in the nosebleed section, if you're, if you're a young man or woman or are soon to be, please stay with me for a moment. And if you're not so young, feel free to stay with me anyway. There is a critical threshold that every believer must cross that makes a radical difference in his or her walk with God from that day forward. And until a believer crosses that threshold, he's badly hamstrung, crippled from moving forward beyond a superficial relationship with God. That threshold is crossed when the believer comes to truly buy into the fact that apart from God's revelation, reality cannot be known. Every version of truth or reality that men devise, that you devise, is fundamentally and hopelessly false. Because the heart of man is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Once you get that, once you cross that threshold, you don't stop sinning, but you are freed up 
from buying into what is perhaps the greatest encumbrance to spiritual maturity, and that is self-dependence. Getting to and crossing that threshold is really hard for young people. It may even be harder in some ways for young people who have grown up being taught the Scriptures by their parents and by others. Because when you're new to adulthood, you're just learning to take ownership of your own ideas and and convictions. To think for yourself rather than operating on the basis of things that have been handed down to you by the authorities in your life. And that process of taking ownership is important. You've got to go through it in order to grow up. But until you come to the realization that only God can tell you what's true, you're going to be stuck in spiritual infancy. And some believers are stuck there far into adulthood because they never come to grips with this very simple proposition. You cannot have a close walk with God and a joyful life as long as you think that you have anything to do with defining your own reality. Many of you here who haven't yet crossed that threshold yet, nonetheless already know the words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Now, there is... Let me back up here. No, let me go forward here. There are two more verses to that passage that most of us don't have memorized. Verse 7 and 8. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. The day that you choose to believe God more than you believe your own senses, your own logic, your own deceptive heart, is the day you get the keys to the treasure chest that is your birthright as a child of God. That treasure chest is the living and active Word of God. And until you stop exalting yourself over it and allow it to exalt, allow God's Word to exalt Him over you, that treasure chest is in many ways inaccessible to you. And the treasure in that chest is an intimate, personal, transforming knowledge of God himself. Please don't settle for anything less. Loving Father, this world chose to walk away from you after you had made yourself clearly known. Men chose to replace the amazing truth that you have made known, that you only have made known with a lie, a pernicious lie that they devised themselves. They set you aside and they made their own gods. And those gods take so many different forms. And Father, we 
confess to you our tendency to to follow after things that fit into that lie instead of into your truth. But Lord, we know that you are at work in us who believe in Jesus as our Savior, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We know how this is going to end up. And it's not because of us. It's only because of your amazing grace. Father, I pray for those here who do know you as Savior, but who are still wrestling with the idea that somehow their own their own way of thinking can inform their lives and make them good. Convict us, Lord. Pierce our hearts and show us compellingly, based on your word, that we can't come to the truth in and of ourselves and we are utterly dependent upon you. That's why your word is so precious to us. That's why it is our necessary food. Because we cannot live, we cannot be sustained, we cannot grow. And above all, Lord, we cannot know you apart from it. Humble us, Father. Make us to fall down before you and to seek you with all our hearts. Lord, if there are any here who do not know their eternal destiny lies only with Christ. I pray that, that they, would, uh, they would resolve that today, that you would resolve that in their hearts today by making it clear to them that Jesus Christ is the one and only sacrifice for their sin and that you've paid the penalty in full, that they must receive your grace by faith and then cling to you in order to know what real life is. Thank you for the power of this passage. It's a sensitive passage. I pray that you would watch over the hearts of our young people. And I pray, Lord, that above all, we would learn what it means to honor you as God and to be a thankful people. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.